afternoon, everyone. Uh, before the sermon, I just wanted to make a brief reference to the, um, the CNN special that was on last night, I believe. I missed it, but I heard about it, uh, about the McDonald twins. I'm sure you remember Christian and Nicole McDonald, who uh, have three boys, their youngest two, Jaden and Anias, uh, were separated at the head some months ago um, and now are recovering. And there's a one-hour special that was run on CNN about the journey that they've been on. So um, you may want to watch it, uh, catch it, do a search on uh, on Google or, or on the CNN website. But um, really uh, quite a quite a road that they have been on and uh, certainly continue to, to need our prayers. Let's talk about government today. Government. I'd like to talk about just one aspect of government. You know, we could talk about many things. We could talk about how it is uh, from the top down, that it involves delegation, uh, that God is calling us to be a part of his kingdom uh, and all that that means. We could talk about leading. We could talk about following all the parts of government, many aspects. But I'd like to focus on one issue. And by way of introduction, some years ago, there was a major issue in the church coming out of Worldwide Church of God. And some people, as some branches of the church developed, uh, believed that you really don't, should not, must not have one leader above the others. That in in the biblical form of government, uh, taking their, their interpretation of the 12 apostles, the 12 apostles were all equal in rank, and uh, you should not have one who was over the others. And, you know, they would say that there's no org chart from the New Testament that shows that one was sort of in charge over others. I'd like to talk about that today. Because the New Testament does actually show a certain principle about God's government, which actually is pretty important, that Jesus did really prepare one man to be a leader among the apostles. And we might phrase it as first among equals, and that, of course, was Peter. If you want a title, Peter and the Key Man Principle. Peter and the Key Man Principle. What is a key man, or what is the key man principle? A uh, key man principle means that, that there's one, one leader who has the, the key influence, who wields Uh, the most influence in an organization, who carries the greatest weight, who has the greatest impact on the organization in that sense by his decisions. In in other words, one who has the final say, one who, if it is fleshed out on an organizational chart, uh, is is at the top of of that chart. Uh, It's a phrase used in insurance, a key man insurance policy recognizes the importance of the leader, the human leader of an organization and the influence that that 
leader has. Well, it applies in biblical government as well. Um, you know, when we think about how God puts together government in Scripture, how, how does it work? Uh, let's turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 6, and we see an example. We see how God seeks out a key man, someone he can work with, someone he can mold and shape and even correct and test. And we see that in the examples of Abraham and Noah and Joshua and Moses and Samuel. And finally here, the example of David. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse Verse 6, this is, of course, when Samuel was going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king. And so it was when they came that he, he, Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So there was something that God saw in David that he wanted for the future king of Israel. And we see in verse uh, verse 8, So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And uh, you see, you know, one by one they all passed. And finally, uh, there was just one missing, the youngest. Verse 11, and he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And so he said, we'll send him and bring him here, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And of course he anointed him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So uh, what we find is God specifically had someone picked out that he wanted in that in that position. Now, is it any different today? Would it be any different in the New Testament era? Because that's where the debate usually starts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, notice. In verse 18, we often read this when we're talking about the body. In the context of how God has has individually called each one of us. And we understand that. And we believe that. And it's not by chance. You know, we didn't just sort of roll into the door and and find ourselves and and God says, Well, I've you know, you're in the door now, so I've got to take you. No. It says verse eighteen, but now has God set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And then it goes on and talks about how the different parts make up the whole and each part has a, has a part to play. Well, think about it. If God has called each of us individually, is he not capable of also placing someone in leadership individually? to help us, to be a leader of leaders, a teacher of teachers. You know, we're all supposed to learn to be teachers and leaders. Wouldn't he call 
someone to, to lead the charge. That's the principle he used in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? <clears throat> Again, one of the, the confusing things when we look at church government in the first century is that we don't have an organizational chart. Wouldn't that have been handy if that would have been included, you know, on, on page, you know, 982 or whatever, a little chart that laid out everything nice and neatly. We don't have it. And we can carelessly assume that there weren't special callings that God gave even among the 12 apostles. Again, one of the criticisms that, that, that we have today, we receive today in, in living, is uh, of a real authoritative top-down government with one man in the top of the org chart. And they say the apostles had 12 and they were all equal. Never mind that the 12 apostles will serve under David in the kingdom. So does it make sense that, you know, David, his government was top-down, very clear, kingship model, and the apostles were sort of, you know, everything's loose, chaotic, democratic, vote everything. How are they supposed to function together in the kingdom? Unless they really had the same general principle of functioning together. And if you believe in that one, there is one physical leader who has to be at the helm, Christ is the head of the church. That is absolutely true. Ephesians chapter 1, I think, talks about it. Christ is the head, but there has to be a physical leader who is under him. And some will say that if you hold that, then you are effectively accepting the papal system the Babylonish system, the image of the beast. This has been an issue from time to time that some have brought up. Is the pyramid-type top-down government with one man at the top under Christ, is that the Babylonish system? You know, Mr. Armstrong himself was confused about it back in the 1930s. And sometimes an article that he wrote by back then will be brought up to show that, see, um, this is the Babylonian system. However, he also wrote other things later on in his life. And let me quote from one that he wrote toward the, toward the end of his life. Uh, we understand that toward the end of his life, he said, one of the primary things that God had done through him was to restore God's government in the church. In a letter to the membership on May 2nd, 1974, he wrote this. Mr. Armstrong wrote, when the new so-called Bible form of church organization was introduced at Salem, naturally the Stanbury people argued against it. I think we all became confused on the question. It's like being too close to one tree to see the forest. I knew that the so-called 12, the 70, and the 7 was entirely misapplied and definitely not God's form of organization. But I also knew that the general conference form was not biblical. In both of those, Stanbury and Salem, the people voted government from the bottom up. For this reason, I did write an article more than 35 years ago in the February 1939 Good News, which went to our own Philadelphian-era members 
proving that this so-called Bible form of organization was not biblical. But I had not as yet come to understand what is the true Bible form of church organization. When the true knowledge was revealed later to those of us in the Philadelphian era, we put it into practice and published this truth. We published an article revealing this truth about church organization in the Good News, November 1952, and again in August 1953, Government in Our Church, and in November 1953, Judging and Discipline in God's Church. As God revealed truth, His church accepted it. And long since, we came into the full truth on church organization and government. So what do we see if we look at the apostolic church, even going back to the training of the disciples? Do we see a totally flat structure among the apostles? Or if we look carefully, do we see one key man that was being trained and prepared? Let's look. Did you know that Peter is mentioned by name about 149 times in the Gospels and Acts? 149 times. Most of the apostles are only mentioned 8 <coughs> or 10 or 15 times. At least from my calculations, the closest second is the apostle John with 29 times. Was it coincidence that Peter was mentioned more than five times than any other apostle? Now, again, Peter was not a pope. Let's not misunderstand. He was not the pontifex maximus. He was not infallible. But was Peter's role a bit unique? Let's look at some of the mentions of Peter, and we'll go through these uh, fairly quickly. If you don't want to turn to them all, you don't have to, but I think it's just good to get a feel for the places where Peter crops up, pops up in the story, in the ministry of Christ. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 28. Matthew 14 verse 28. And Peter answered him, this is uh, when they thought they saw a ghost out on the water and they were troubled. They cried out for fear. They, but immediately, verse 27, Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, of course, we understand he sank we understand he, you know, he, he couldn't quite yet walk on the water fully at that point, but he, he did several steps. But um, interesting. <clears throat> Peter sort of had a natural boldness. He stepped out. He said, Lord, tell me to walk on the water. And he did. That's one of the first mentions of him in Matthew. Uh, go over to chapter 16 and verse 15. Christ asked the disciples who they thought he was. Matthew 16 and verse 15. He said, but who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, the indication seems to be that this was divinely inspired. That Peter was not just speaking out of his own thoughts. He didn't just come up with this on his own. This was something that that was was given to him, that was was uh, put in his put in his mind. And notice in verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You know, we often show this and read this to show that Peter was not the rock upon which the church was built. The word for Peter is Petros. If my memory serves correctly, it's it's a stone, it's a rock. The word for the rock is a cliff, is a massive, massive formation. And that's talking about Christ. And Christ is the one that the church was built on. And yet, why did Christ specifically tell Peter this statement? Unless perhaps as a leader among equals, he might forget and think it was his doing instead of Christ, who was the head of the church. Sort of, Peter, don't ever forget. Yes, you step out forward. Yes, you have perhaps more influence than the others. Don't ever forget who you are. And don't ever forget who really is in charge. That I'm the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Don't ever forget who the church is really built on. It's not you. Even though you're going to be used in a le- as a leader in many ways. Notice in um, chapter 16 and verse 22. Uh, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter, notice this, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And notice what Christ said to him. He turned, said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Was perhaps Christ preparing Peter for a role, even by giving him some of the strongest correction that he gave any of the disciples? Maybe being a little bit harder on him than the others. Maybe maybe taking a two-by-four to that pride a little bit. Not a little bit. Maybe a lot. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 24. Notice another reference to Peter. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to who? To Peter. And said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? To whom did the tax collectors come when they wanted to ask a question about Christ? Now I know this could be coincidence, but 149 times he's mentioned. 
The point is trying to get a sense of the language as you go through here and trying to get a sense of maybe how Christ was molding and shaping and, yes, correcting this man who had some natural boldness and natural courage, and he was going to use those natural abilities in a special way. You know, some people just do sort of step out ahead and sort of are willing to take that first step. Others are, are hang back a little bit. And Peter was like that. And, and Christ used it. It's not all that bad. You need sometimes people who are willing to go boldly where no one has gone before, to quote an old TV show. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26. Notice another example. Matthew 19 and verse uh, 26. After he was talking about how it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, and then he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples heard it. Verse 25, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And notice who answered. Verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? How many times was Peter the one who spoke up for the whole group? And yes, had a bit of brashness. A bit of bravado, but he, he, he did it. Interesting, just the sort of the nature of the man. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33. Just getting a picture here. 26. Of course, none of these men were converted this, at this time, that... that you know, we're, we're looking at in the time when, when Christ was, was working with them and, and fashioning them and, and teaching them. Uh, Matthew 26 and verse 33. Uh, this is when, uh, in verse 31, Christ said, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after... I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And notice who answered. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. You know, Peter had a, a, a level of, of courage. And certainly, I think at this point, he believed that he would follow through on what he was saying. He had confidence in his own abilities. And God had to break that down so that Peter would someday have confidence in God instead of himself. But he did have a certain level of natural boldness. And once it was channeled in the right direction, it was powerful. You know, sometimes working with our, our children... Sometimes you know, some children are, are more self-willed and more stubborn and more hard-headed than others. 
not to mention any names. You know. But you know what? With those who, who do have a stronger will, if you can massage it, if you can work with it, if you can redirect it down the right path, and they can get going down the right path, there's no stopping them. It's not bad to have a strong will. It just needs to be channeled. So, of course, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter said, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So he had a lot of confidence in his own, his own ability, his own courage, his own fortitude. But notice the next phrase. I want to draw your attention to that. It says, and so said all the disciples. So after Peter said, I will never deny you, then everybody else raised their hand too, right? And said, me too, me too, me too. Did Peter sort of step out? As as sort of a natural leader in that group. Let's turn over to, oh, we're already there. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. You know, all of the, we we understand all of the disciples fled. Um, Peter did, as well as the others. Uh, John apparently stayed close. Uh, you know, because he knew the high priest, or, or he was uh, he was there nearby, uh, but they all fled. But notice in Matthew chapter 26, and then verse 36. Okay, going back to when Christ was praying, then Jesus came to them with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, "Sit here while I go and pray over there." And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Was Jesus just plain favorites? Or does it appear like there was a a closer group that Christ would sometimes talk to within the disciples, within the twelve? You know, that smaller group sometimes would would be three or four. Uh, Peter, James, and John, sometimes Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Those four were the ones who, who asked Christ, when would the signs of the end of the age be in Mark 13? Uh, Peter, James, and John were the ones invited with Christ to see the transfiguration. Uh, Peter, James, and John were the ones who we just uh, read of, were, were invited to be with them when he, he, was, he was in his darkest hour, when he was praying in agony. Is that coincidence? Or was there a smaller group that, that Christ was, would talk to more privately sometimes, would, would work with more intimately sometimes, perhaps training them for a little different of a leadership role? Notice in John chapter 12, it's interesting to note something over here. John chapter 12 And verse 20, 
now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Notice verse 22. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So why didn't Philip just tell Christ? Why did he go to Andrew? There seems to be that these three or four were a little bit more close to uh, that Christ perhaps uh, would talk to them more privately sometimes. And that, that makes sense. That would be natural in any group. There might be uh, some that he was working with uh, more closely. So what happened after he was finished praying? Notice in Mark chapter 14. I know we're looking at a lot of scriptures, but again, just trying to give a flavor, a sense. We're not going to go through all 149 instances of Peter's life, but a, a sense of how he was used. Mark chapter 14 and verse 37. You know, after Christ uh, was was praying to the Father, was in agony, verse 35, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him, verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Verse 37, then he came and found them sleeping, and he said to, to who? Peter. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Notice the language. He found them sleeping, but his, his words were directed to Simon. His words were directed to Peter. Now, it doesn't appear that Christ was necessarily the closest in friendship to Peter. We know, we know he, he was closest to John. But in terms of training, it, it appears that Peter had, there was something different about Peter's role. Uh, Mark chapter 16 and verse, verse 6. Mark chapter 16 and verse 6. After uh, Christ's death and burial and resurrection. And then it says, Mary Magdalene, mother, the Mar uh, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices and uh, etc. In verse uh, 5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Verse 6, but it, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Why did the angel refer to Peter specifically? Was it just a slip of the tongue? Peter wasn't the Pope. You know, please understand. He wasn't infallible. Uh, he wasn't a totalitarian dictator. He wasn't anything of that sort. But there's something different in the mention of, of him. Notice in uh, John chapter 6, you know, we, we, we know that, that Peter was not the, a pope or some sort of infallible figure. 
But let's not go to the other extreme and assume that he didn't have a special leadership role. That's the point. John chapter 6 and verse, verse 66. Jesus was talking about having to, uh, that they should eat his flesh and drink his blood. Otherwise, they had no life in them. This was a hard saying. It says, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But notice who spoke up. Verse 68, but Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, why is this important? Why go through all of these? Because God does work primarily through one man as a leader. One man who is the spearhead, the spear point as sometimes we say, um, who takes the lead among others who are supporting him. It's not his work. He's not overlording. Um, God uses abilities and directs them according to his will. But the idea that some sort of democracy and some sort of voting apparatus uh, is just not in the Bible at all. It's just not there. And it seems like there was a role that Christ was preparing Peter for. Notice in uh, John uh, 21 and verse 1, the focus of Peter had to be directed, that is for sure, after Christ's death and resurrection. Notice what happened. Uh, John 21 and verse 1, after these things, Jesus answered himself again to, uh, showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter showed a tremendous amount of leadership at this point in directing the work and taking the gospel to the world, right? Isn't that what it says in your Bible? No, he says, I'm going fishing. And notice what the others did. They said to him, we're going with you also. Now, if I remember correctly, that's about six guys. That's about half of the disciples right there. They they didn't know what the next step was. They didn't know what they were supposed to do yet at that point. But the point is that, that Peter had a sort of a natural leadership influence. And when he said, I'm going to go fishing, five other guys or six, whatever it was, came with him. So they went fishing. And uh, they went out and immediately got into the boat. That night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore. And uh, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And, and he said to them, children, have you any food? And, of course, um, they said no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. 
Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. Would you say that Peter had a certain amount of, you know, zeal to go forward? Even sort of an impetuous way here, impulsive way? I don't think he got to the shore any quicker than the other guys in the boat. But he plunged into the sea. The other disciples came in a little in the little boat, for they were not far from land. They were about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. As soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Now notice this. This is a very interesting dialogue that goes on between Christ and Peter here in a few verses. He told them to eat breakfast. Um, and uh, verse 14, this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And of course, Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Now we've often heard this explained What does this mean? And why was it repeated? And what was going on? And after a while, Peter gets exasperated because Christ is asking him several times, do you love me? But maybe he was asking him because Peter was going to have a special role. And Christ was trying to explain to him, you've got to be focused You've got to be on target. You're going to need to have your priorities in the right direction. Do you really love me? There was going to fall on Peter a special burden because he had a certain amount of capacity, but most of all, if he would yield himself to God. To do what? To feed Christ's sheep. This word here, when he says, feed my lambs, the word feed is from the Greek word bosco, bosco, to pasture, to give fodder to, to get, to graze, to feed, to provide nourishment for. It's, you know, comparing it to feeding literal sheep. That's the role of a teacher. He was saying, Peter, you're going to need to take the lead in teaching the truth. He didn't tell this to the others. And then notice verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Different word there. What's the word? Greek word, uh, something like poimaino, poimaino, which means to tend as a shepherd, to supervise. A little bit different than teach. He said, you're going to need to to give some oversight to the church. Now, again, is it wrong for us to believe that Peter had a special role? No, not towering above the other apostles, but had a special role to feed and even to to protect and, and to give some oversight and supervise. 
in, in, a, in a positive way. And then he says a third time. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So the, now he goes back to the other word, which is to teach, to feed as you're feeding a goat or a sheep or a, or a cow. Maybe focusing on the fact that, no, he's not going to be an overlord. You know, it's primarily teaching, but there has to be some oversight as well. So, you know, just put yourself in Peter's shoes. If Christ, if you had been there, and, and Jesus Christ would look you in the eye and say, whatever your name is, when I'm gone, it's your responsibility to teach my sheep. To teach my sheep. Feed my sheep. And to give oversight to protect to my sheep. Would you not take that as a special burden? He looked you in the eye. You know, he's going to do that with all of us. In the future. That's why we're being trained today as, as first fruits. That's why we, when we at the Feast of Tabernacles, we, we learn about what's going to happen in the future and how we may be over cities or uh, several cities or a region or whatever, eventually over the universe, or parts of the universe. Why? To tend, to teach, to give oversight to. Peter took that seriously when we look at the rest of the story, of course. <clears throat> Let's turn over to Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. Luke 22 and verse 24. Again, we're, we're just establishing that there, there is no grounds, there are no grounds to the idea that in the New Testament they, they sort of, you know, voted... And they sort of were really in chaos because no one was taking the lead. It just is not there. Luke 22 and verse 24. Luke 22, verse 24. Now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. They, they were uh, still carnal at this point. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who cons- governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. You know, this is talking about attitude and not structure. Actually, it, it does confirm the fact that there is structure because he's saying that the, the chief shall act like a servant. Those who are greatest among you shall serve. Sometimes this, this scripture has been used to try to negate any structure, any top-down structure, and it's just not there. <clears throat> Verse 
Let's turn over to, oh, we're, we're right there. Actually, verse 28, let's read that. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, and that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Guess what? They're going to be working right under a king, right under David. David learned top-down government. You know, if the apostles were into, into uh, balloting and polling, they're just not going to fit very well with David, don't you think? It's not going to happen. But notice something that comes right next. Verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So many things in this verse that really speak volumes. First of all, Satan wanted Peter. Satan wanted to destroy Peter. You know, when Judas left, not one of the other disciples followed him. Judas wasn't a leader among the twelve. But Satan wanted Peter because maybe Satan recognized that God saw something in Peter that he wanted to use. And maybe if he would have gotten Peter, it would have been more disruptive to the twelve. Who knows? He had more influence. Satan wanted him. There was something that he he wanted to, to take him. And Christ specifically prayed that he wouldn't. And then he said, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. When you are changed, strengthen your brethren. What does that word strengthen mean? comes from the Greek word sterizo, which means to set fast, to literally turn resolutely in a certain direction. In other words, he's saying, Peter, I'm depending on you to be an influence in setting the course straight when I institute my church. Isn't it interesting what you you find about Peter? And this is all still before he was actually converted. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 1 because the story gets even more exciting. After the Holy Spirit was given, after they changed, we find in Acts chapter 1, there, of course, is a um, situation where it says in verse 15, in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Who stood up? Peter stood up. Why? I don't know. He stood up. He seemed to be sort of a leader among the twelve, right? And uh, the number of the names was about 120. And then he talked about how we need to replace Judas. We need to find someone who will take his place. And so they proposed to, verse 23, Joseph called Barsabas, who is surnamed Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry an apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And by the way, casting lots was not casting ballots. And some commentaries get this wrong and and they will say this was 
You know, this was voting. It wasn't voting. Casting lots was a was a what we would look at as a as a as a game of chance. But if God was if, if there was a decision that need to be made, it was a way to determine God's decision. It was not casting ballots. Let me read a little bit from the Easton's Bible Dictionary. It says when, when they were cast their lots, the lot, it said, was a small stone used in casting lots, Numbers 3354, uh, uh, Jonah 1-7. The lot was always resorted to by the Hebrews with strictif, strictest reference to the interposition of God and as a method of ascertaining the divine will and in serious cases of doubt. And, of course, this was the last case where they cast lots after the Holy Spirit was given. They, they didn't do it anymore. But it's a misunderstanding to say that this was voting. It absolutely was not voting. It was determining God's will. Even in the, in the prayer, you can, you can see it. It wasn't, it wasn't them forcing their will and then taking a tally of who, who voted for whom. We won't go through all of them, but on Acts chapter 2, it was Peter who stood up on the day of Pentecost to explain that, uh, that the Spirit was being poured out. Acts chapter 3, it was Peter and John. But Peter, taking the lead, who went out and taught in the temple, who healed the man by saying to him, Rise and walk. In Acts chapter 4, the rulers of the temple perceived the boldness of Peter and John. And Peter was the one doing most of the speaking. In Acts chapter 5, it was Peter who perceived that Ananias had kept back part of the money promised to the church. In Acts chapter 5, it was Peter whose shadow people sought just to pass over them so they might be healed. You know, is it wrong to acknowledge that God was, was working powerfully in this man? Again, not a pope, not infallible, not a dictator, but, but, a, but a leader. A leader. Acts chapter 8, it was Peter and John who went up to Samaria and laid hands on those baptized by Philip and Peter who confronted Simon Magus. Acts chapter 9, it was Peter who was the tool through which God made Aeneas whole, someone who had been sick with palsy for eight years, working through the hands of Peter. In Acts chapter 9, God used Peter to raise Dorcas from the dead. And then Acts chapter 10. Notice in Acts chapter 10. Let's go there uh, just briefly. <clears throat> very interesting passage here. A very significant chapter, an event in the history of the church. Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. And about the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he answered him, he was afraid, and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers, your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And, of course, so he sent for him, and Peter came, and 
Peter was questioning what this was going to all be about. And finally, we know the whole story. We're not going to read it all. But in verse 44, while Peter was speaking to them, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And, you know, from our perspective, it's easy to lose the emphasis and the importance of what just happened here. The Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, and they were speaking in tongues. And that was showing that it was the same as those on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had been poured out to the Gentiles, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter said, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He said, You know, I can't stand in the way of what God is doing. None of us can stand in the way. Is there any reason? Can any of you think of why we should not baptize them? They clearly are receiving the Spirit. And, of course, they they were baptized. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked them to stay a few days. So what happened? Acts chapter 11 and verse 1. The point is, Paul was not the first one who dealt with Gentiles becoming Christians without being circumcised. That's the point. Peter was. Acts 11 verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so he related the whole story. He told them from the beginning. And finally, he said, verse 17, If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Doesn't sound like a pope figure. Doesn't sound like someone who was seeing himself as infallible. Sounds like someone who was allowing himself to be led by God. Who was I? And when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Interesting. So it was through Peter that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit and were converted and received the gospel. God opened the way of salvation to the Gentiles, not through Paul, but through Peter. What an incredible story. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. We see that about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. And uh, when he arrested him and delivered him to uh, four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. You know the story. Uh, James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod, and Peter was let go. Peter was going to be killed, but the angel 
came and miraculously let him loose. Why was James allowed to die? Why would God allow that to happen? Why save Peter and not save James? We don't know all the reasons why God does what he does, but perhaps it was not in God's plan at this time yet to allow Peter to die. Perhaps he was going to use him in a a leadership role. Let's go on to Acts chapter 15. Now this, of course, is one of the biggest portions of Scripture that can seem to say, see, James was in charge. Peter was not the key guy here. But with all the background we've seen and all the examples and all the Scriptures, let's read Acts 15 from that perspective. Certain men, verse 1, came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem, to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. And when there had been much dispute... Notice who rose up, Peter. And said to the men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between them and us, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent. Did you notice something? Before Peter spoke, there was much dispute. After Peter spoke, they all kept silent. Any of you remember the old commercial when E.F. Hutton talks? People listen. Sorry, those of you who are, you know, haven't heard that before. It's a financial advisor. I don't even know anything about E.F. Hutton, but I remember the commercials. And supposedly E.F. Hutton was so smart, or his organization was so smart, that, you know, when he talks, it, 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 it answers every question. So people listen, and everybody's silent. Well, apparently when Peter talked, it ended the discussion. Why? Because they all knew he had been there. They all knew he was the one who had been with the household of Cornelius, and it had been miraculous, and there had been witnesses, and they had received God's Spirit. And he had asked them, can anyone forbid water? They're speaking in tongues. Not ecstatic utterance, we understand. But they're speaking in tongues like we were. They all knew he was the one who had been there. He had a certain stature. That's the point. So they kept silent and then did what? They listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, then James answered now james had to answer 
because the ones who were troubling the whole issue were from James' congregation. And if James had kept quiet, hadn't said anything, had been on the fence, the division would have continued. James had to say something. And he totally affirmed what Peter had said and what Paul and Barnabas had said. Just sort of interesting. Again, Peter wasn't infallible. Peter wasn't a pope. He didn't expect people to fall down and worship him. In fact, when some did try, he he said, get up, it's not us doing it. It's nothing in me or John who is healing you. It's God who's healing you through the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We don't worship Peter, but, but brethren, can we sometimes overlook the tremendous example of leadership that this man was for us? Especially in a time when, when leadership in our day is downplayed at every turn. Can we not appreciate what this man did in raising up? Christ did it through him, but in raising up the first century church. God did it through him, of course. But just like Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and just like Dr. Meredith more recently, it took a strong man to withstand criticism and storms and persecution in the early days of the church. And you know, now we need to pray for Mr. Weston. That God would give him that same strength and courage in our day. Because he surely carries a heavy heavy burden. And praying for his wife that she would have the strength to support him in this role that he has. Please don't misunderstand I'm not saying we blindly follow Mr. Weston. I'm not saying we blindly follow any man. That's not what God would want. That's not what Mr. Weston would want. I'm sure. I know what I am saying. God appoints leaders. Not by voting. Not by committee. God appoints leaders. He provides leaders. And we follow them as they follow Christ. We look to them as the fruits show. And we're thankful that God has provided leadership now after the death of Mr. Meredith. Again, we're not addressing today how a leader should lead. That's a totally different topic. Totally different issue. What we're talking about is that there is a pattern. And God has provided. And he does provide for top down leadership you know the more that i look at the example of peter the more i admire him and appreciate what he did and how he helped to to be an influence to have helped the the church to be on the right track as christ was leading and guiding him just as christ had charged him eyeball to eyeball i'm looking to you to feed and to, re- to direct.
Notice in Galatians chapter 2, he also had a tremendous amount of humility, didn't he? Galatians chapter 2, because this issue just didn't really go away about circumcision. And we find there was a time, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Interesting. Peter was not a potentate, you know. He was not infallible or incapable of, of, of making a mistake. He was a humble man. He backed off when he knew he said, yep, I'm, I'm wrong. What a beautiful picture of a man who was used powerfully by God in so many ways. God works through key men. We see that in the Bible all the way from the beginning to the end. He began by calling a few, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah and Enoch and Joseph, Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David, Elijah, Elisha. And now he is opened up to his first fruits, the chance to be have leadership roles in his kingdom. In the millennium, that door will open even more. He's filling spots one by one. John chapter 14 talks about how there are many, many opportunities to work in his kingdom. Let's turn over there. Uh, John chapter 14 and verse 1. John chapter 14 and verse 1. Christ said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, and we understand these to be, to be offices, to be opportunities to, to serve. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if, you, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Christ left so that he would be able to prepare a place for the first fruits. And that's us. We're a part of that. If we are willing, if we want it, if we're submitting to the training if we come to understand and accept and love and appreciate what he's doing and also appreciate that he provides leaders to serve us and has placed them there just where he wants for our benefit. We didn't vote them in. He placed them there. And for the benefit of the work. It's pretty astounding when we see how God works in his work, in his government, and how he's giving us every opportunity to learn and prepare for it right now. Let's turn over to, in conclusion, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. 
I hope this has been a perhaps an interesting look at Peter. No, he is not a one-man show. No, he is not a pope, never intended to be, never considered himself to be, never was looked at to be, and that certainly is not anything like what we look at leadership in the church today. But we must also not underestimate the importance of the fact that God does place leaders to help and guide us. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Government is, you know, thought to be a, a negative thing today. You know, it's, we, we have grown up in an atmosphere of chaos. We have grown up in an atmosphere of, of one man, one vote, at least the, the concept. And, you know, it can bleed over into the church if we're not careful. Well, that's just not the way that the church was, when we look at the New Testament, <clears throat> was put together, and it's certainly not the way that Christ is going to run things in the future. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end and it will be a blessing for the whole earth and a blessing for the whole solar system and a blessing for the whole universe, ultimately. And with God's help, we can be a part of that. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's be thankful for government as long as as much as it is hard to say that statement, you know. Government, it's almost a bad word. But let's be thankful for it. In this flesh, it always will be imperfect as long as we are in the flesh. And yet if we have patience and faith, we learn valuable lessons through it, how to function in God's government. Peter was not a pope, but neither should we diminish the powerful impact this man had on the church. Let's be thankful for the leadership God provides as we ourselves prepare to be key men and key women through whom God can transform this whole earth and ultimately the whole world through his kingdom. 